Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. All right, so quick poll. How many exclamation points is too many to use in a presidential statement? One. One is too many? An mm. exclamation mark has no business being in a presidential I statement. I just go for it. America first! <laughs> Wait. No. It, if it's an exclamation point about something happy, then yeah. I think maybe there's a role. Maybe. But no. it's better than all caps. I just spent, uh, for Susan and my book, uh, a long time researching the history of presidential speech which is a really interesting subject. And I want to say excessive punctuation in general has no place in presidential speech. That's my pronunciation. Like too many periods is a bad thing too? Like like don't try to do through punctuation what you can't do through quality argumentation and dignity and <laughs> well, okay, but when you are lacking in those things go to the exclamation point yeah i mean so maybe an exclamation point is sort of the the poor man's uh speech writer i guess but if you think about other forms of punctuation i mean abraham lincoln was big on the comma right lots and lots and lots of comma My clauses question is are we going to get through this entire administration without the first emoji in a presidential mm. statement oh I mean, we've already had the first made up word kofefe <laughs> that was a tweet but okay but has he ever used an emoji in a tweet i don't think so I'm sure he knows where they are. On the You're phone. right, Shane. We haven't hit bottom yet. Which emoji <laughs> is he going to use first? Poop. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to connect it to the Bob Mueller with the Mueller witch hunt, which, by the way, should be this week's band name. We'll get there. Hello and welcome to Rational Security. The world is a very dangerous place edition. I'm Shane Harris. I avoid exclamation points in my articles. I do overuse them in emails. Eight, however, is too many. And that America is how many first. we used. <laughs> America first. This is a statement. Eight. It was eight exclamation points. Although two of them, I will say, one was quoting death to Israel. The other was quoting death to America. So only six of the eight were Wait, actually so the Wait, so do the Iranians, in fact, put exclamation points Ooh, in their death to Israel and or death did, to America Or were they statements? added by... Added it, for emphasis. You can put that in brackets. <clears throat> maybe it's more just, maybe they just, very subdued. It just says, death to America, period. Or maybe no, no punctuation needed at all. It's a fairly strong statement Actually, if you on want, its own. Actually, if you want to say them together, you would use a semicolon between them. Death, death to, to America, America semicolon, semicolon, death, death to, to Israel. Israel. Poop emoji. <laughs> 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 this is really getting off on a good start. Oh, we've been away for two weeks, you guys. Sophisticated foreign policy wow. analysis here on Rational Security. All right. Well, we are here in the Jungle Studio, the new Jungle Studio, with Ben, Tamara, and Susan. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Hope you had a restful time away. We're back. Nothing happened. While in we effect, were gone. I nothing missed happened. you. Nothing. I missed you guys too. But I ate a lot of turkey. I used a lot of turkey. A lot of leftovers. 
And now we're here. Now we're to here. discuss the leftovers of the past two weeks. Oof. <clears throat> this week on the podcast, Paul Manafort, you remember him, heads to sentencing amid revelations that he has lied to the special counsel, cooperated with Trump's legal team, and may have met with Julian Assange. Busy boy. The president stands by Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, whom the CIA says ordered the murder of a journalist, and President Trump heads off to meet with world leaders at the G Summit. That's going to be a really fun family portrait. The G what? The G20. The G20. What did I say? You said the G Summit. The G Summit. <laughs> you know, the G Summit. For the all OG the G Summit. <laughs> it's the OG Summit. The G Summit. It says right here on my script, G20, exclamation point, Summit. <laughs> um, forgive. Uh, let's start with uh, the news on Manafort. Um, let's start with the fact that uh, we're going to get to a lot of stuff about what he's been up to. Um, but the reports now that uh, the special counsel is going to proceed to the sentencing phase uh, for Manafort, who, of course, was convicted in one trial and plugged guilty to other charges to avoid a second trial uh, amid revelations that uh, the special counsel charges anyway, that Mueller was lying to them during this period when he was supposed to be cooperating with the investigation. We recall that was what the guilty plea was in exchange for, uh, was his cooperation, and also that he has been sharing information with the Trump legal team. Let's start with just those two facts, Ben, and kind of kick us off here. I guess my first question would be, would be why in the world, after pleading guilty to crimes, to spare yourself more time in prison when you're already uh, no longer a young man and you're staring at a possible 10-year sentence, would you then lie to federal investigators uh, in the midst of your cooperation, thereby, I presume, guaranteeing that they will just ask the judge to throw the book at you when you go to sentencing? Uh, so I can only think of two explanations for this. Neither of them is entirely satisfying. Uh, the first is that it's irrational and pathological and that this is somebody who uh, you know, simply cannot control his behavior. And He has um, lied a lot in his life. He, no, I mean he's lied a huge amount but his also – his conduct throughout the investigation has always reflected the belief that he can you know, get away with the next thing, right? So he doesn't cut a deal before he's indicted. He then refuses to waive venue and ends up having you know, two separate trials. He uh, allegedly commits obstruction of justice and witness tampering while under indictment, right? He he tries. Uh, then he goes to trial, which is an insane thing to do given the state of the evidence against him, uh, gets convicted, and then he resolves the case. And one thing you could see this as is just the the latest act of somebody who has like misplayed every single step of it. The other way to understand it is that it's a a, a bid for a pardon. And I think the, the fact that his lawyer was briefing the president's lawyers, why the president's lawyers admitted this on the record to the New York Times yesterday. Because Rudy Giuliani. Uh, right. Is, <laughs> I, you know, is mystifying. But uh, I do think one thing you could, you could, you could hypothesize is that he was, uh, you know, having made the plea deal, trying to show the president I'm still on the team uh, in hopes of a pardon. But that in turn raises the question, why on earth did he reach a plea deal in the first place? If your play was for a pardon, 
the best way to do that, I think, would have been when the president was tweeting deep sympathies about how sad it was and how much he admired your standing tough. So I don't think either of the two explanations is all that satisfying. And I think the you know, in, at least in my case, the honest answer is I don't have a good read on this situation. It's super, super weird. Susan, if, if, if Manafort had gone to or his lawyers had gone to the president and said, in effect, we are going to plead guilty so that we can enter a cooperation phase and thereby learn the kinds of things that Mueller wants to know about related to the campaign and possible Russian collusion, and then we're going to tell you everything he's asking us and we want to pardon in return. Would that be illegal or would some of those things be legal and some would not be? So I think it's a little bit strange to apply sort of the legal or illegal. I think it's, um, it is an act of obstruction of justice consistent with, say, firing Jim Comey. So I think it raises sort of precisely the same questions on when the president sort of exercises his constitutional authorities for illegitimate purposes. At what point does that cross the line into illegality? I do think that what Trump might end up in that, in that circumstance is if he were to pardon Manafort, the, the Manafort pardon would surely stand, right? You couldn't undo it after the fact. You couldn't invalidate the pardon. Trump could find himself in all kinds of hot water, either because the Department of Justice uh, determines that a president actually can be indicted for something like obstruction of justice, or because it sparks, uh, you know, impeachment type proceedings. I mean, it really would be a, a grotesque abuse of power. Um, I think that there are a lot of mysteries surrounding sort of the joint defense agreement piece. One is why Mueller didn't make that a condition of the plea in the first place. You mean like um, to suspend it? So in Rick Gates' plea agreement, there is a gag order, right? There is an, an actual provision of the plea agreement that says you aren't allowed to share any information. That provision is not included in Paul Manafort's plea agreement. Yeah, that is odd. And that's something that people actually talked about at the time. Like, that's that's a little bit suspicious. Um, Politico reported uh, on this sort of joint defense agreement back in early October. Actually, it was so absurd that I think people figured it just had to be wrong because – how could Paul Manafort possibly be sort of continuing this joint defense agreement? So Mueller has at the very least known that this was an issue for a while. And I don't want to be sort of – it's always tempting to sort of assume, you know, Robert Mueller's playing 12-dimensional chess here and he knows every single piece. But this is a really big mistake for incredibly seasoned prosecutors to just sort of have overlooked. And so I think that there is just sort of a – mysterious piece. The other thing that, you know, if you'll like indulge me in being a little bit conspiratorial, I do think it's interesting that this is all revealed right after Trump submitted his written answers on all kinds of questions. So assume sort of the worst versions of the facts, right? Paul Manafort actually is sort of soliciting information from the special counsel for the purpose of feeding it back to Trump, telling Trump what he's telling the special counsel for purposes of coordinating their statements. Now, Mueller has known that Paul Manafort is lying about things and presumably is able to prove the underlying truth in some way for a long period of time. He waits until Donald Trump commits to answers in writing where there are legal consequences. And then a week later says, surprise, Paul Manafort has been lying and we know he's been lying this whole time. And so, again, 
like maybe this is all just a coincidence, but if I were Donald Trump and I I actually was in cahoots with Paul Manafort on this, I would be feeling incredibly nervous right now. So you're saying this is something Mueller kind of set it up this way. That it could be that Mueller set it up this way because it's inconceivable to you that he would have overlooked the fact of this joint defense agreement. So I don't want to put so it's it like as barium. like a You let it you see what grand... shows up on the Trump side because you know that Manafort is giving it to Yeah, him. it's like a barium enema. That's right. <laughs> I don't want to posit it as like a grand conspiracy theory. I'm well, just noting like the the two really core mysteries and proposing possible explanations for for how that i don't know squares logically so i i think one other thing that i always think about when these kinds of leaks come out is that these you know they're never coming from the Mueller team they are coming from the president's lawyers, you know, they're coming from these subjects or witnesses in the investigation. And the president's lawyers in particular, everything they say, everything they seem to reveal, it's not actually a defense strategy in a legal sense. It's a PR strategy. It's a messaging strategy. And we've talked about this before. And so as you, Susan and Ben and Shane, as you look at this latest reveal and the way Giuliani's been talking about this joint defense agreement, what does it tell you about what their messaging strategy is? What is it they are trying to sell to the public and to Trump's base? Well, I think the one of the most interesting things about that New York Times story was how the president was using in tweets information that he appears to have gotten from Paul Manafort. And so I think the answer to your question is right there in presidential tweets, you know, these tweets about how the Mueller people are yelling at people and how they're treating people and terribly and when it all comes out, it's going to be a scandal. And clearly that – well, not clearly, but that appears to be references to things that presumably he learned from briefings from Manafort's lawyer. So one of the most interesting puzzles in this to me is – and I think when we learn what it means, we'll begin to answer Susan's question in – I don't have the filing in front of me, but in the filing that Mueller issued, he said not merely that Manafort had lied, but that he had committed additional crimes. Now, mm. uh, one of the interesting questions to me is – whether committing additional crimes are the lies because lying to the FBI is an additional crime. But then you would think the phraseology of it might have been he lied repeatedly to investigators, which constitutes an additional crime. They didn't word it that way. They said both that he had lied and that he had committed additional crimes. And that raises the question to me of whether the additional crimes, you know, might have to do with these interactions. I think we just don't know at this stage and we're just going to have to, you know, wait and find out. I well, imagine like Paul Manafort like dealing weed on a street corner. At right, this exactly. Point, right? Like just any kind of crime you can think of. He's got a prison of. cigarette <laughs> ring going. <laughs> right. Um, let's, let's also talk about but, another. But, but, by the way, can I just add about Paul Manafort? I watched – the movie The Last Night, Get Me Roger Stone, which is, by the way, a brilliant documentary, but also contains an incredible interview with Paul Manafort about 
his business with Roger Stone yeah. when they ran uh, Black Manafort and Stone. And Paul Manafort comes across as, you know, put together, polished, greasy and sleazy, but but – but Anxious. but really, you know, capable and able, and it's it's the movie was not made that long ago, and now we're dealing with with Manafort in a really different context. Did they show them having dinner together at the Palm the night before the inauguration in that film? No, because I was there and saw them having dinner together, and their the crew was right outside. I always want I have to see the movie. I'm not sure it made it in. Um, but speaking of uh, uh, dinners and interesting meetings, so the Guardian I was out with a story uh, this week, which. We often use the phrase, whoa, if true, this would be holy shit if true, yeah. because it would be um, kind of the smoking gun linkage that would establish at least the uh, the, 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 the collusion the, part the collusion of the collusion frame, you know, how it would have gone, <laughs> which was that uh, Manafort, according to The Guardian and its reporting, which was all anonymous, uh, but it said was based on documents the reporters either had seen or been briefed on, I'm not clear, but that Manafort met in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where Julian Assange has exiled himself on three separate occasions, the most recent being March 2016, which is a significant date because it's when Paul Manafort went to go work for the Trump campaign for free. Uh, it's also when the Russians started stealing emails from John Podesta. Um, so the the question, I guess, well, one thing we should point out is that no news organization has been able to match this story. Yeah. yeah so, and CNN came out with a variant a little bit, which is that Manafort met with the Ecuadorian right, president which has been in known, Quito and that they discussed Assange Well, the, the question is that they're not. But Mueller's looking into that is what right. Carl Bernstein reported. This adds a whole new level of, of intrigue. I will say I, I do not know if it's true. One thing that I was a bit skeptical of, and maybe this is a reminder that as much as we kind of give Mueller these omniscient, omnipotent kind of qualities, maybe he doesn't know everything because I'm fairly sure that Bob Mueller, or at least the people around the investigation, were not aware of this allegation. I suppose it's possible that Manafort could have met with Julian Assange. It's notable that no one's been able to confirm that, however, which makes me think that most of this is coming out of Ecuadorian government sources, which is where the story in The Guardian was, was datelined from, was Quito. Yeah, so I I do think we have to have a lot of caution just because the sourcing is is weak and weird and – you know, there are all kinds of things that come through in intelligence intercepts that are like are not grounded in reality. And so if you're sort of if you're going into that world, you can come up with some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, the one thing is, look, it's basically impossible to go in and out of an embassy without being detected. Um, it's basically impossible to go in and out of an embassy located in London that is under constant surveillance by British authorities who are watching Julian Assange without being detected. And so this is something that like should be pretty readily verifiable. Can I, can I posit a theory on that though? Okay, let's say let's say that that's a given. Although it's a cat. What's that? It's the cat. <laughs> the cat that it I mean it, it Manafort trust is a cat. I will say it's in a it's in a weird, not exactly back alley, but it's tucked off a small side street next to a department store. And it's a tiny embassy with like one Bobby standing at it. It's, so it's not like, it's not covered. We, we can't see the surveillance, but agree with you. Yes, the, the Brits are watching this thing. Is it possible that the Brits did have this information 
But they did not automatically share it with U.S. authorities because Paul Manafort is a U.S. person, and this would constitute essentially a Five Eyes member spying on an American, which is something that we couldn't do under those circumstances. So first of all, it's not elect- it's not electronic surveillance. You know, it, it's presumably video monitoring. Physical, of, yeah. And secondly, the target of the surveillance is not Paul Manafort. The target of the surveillance is either Julian Assange, who's not a U.S. person, or – uh, the embassy itself, which is an instrumentality of a foreign government. Well, then how did, wouldn't just a U.S. person number one visited Julian Assange? Uh, so you, you may have had to minimize in that context. I mean, how do you um, know he's even visiting Assange? How do you know he's not there to see the consul general? But hang on a second. It, it seems to me the, the, the critical question here. Let's leave aside the question of whether the U.S. has its own surveillance for purposes of figuring out what's going on with Julian Assange. Um, I I would start with the question of if these are Ecuadorian government sources, and I think there is some reason to think that based on the text of the article itself, not to mention the dateline, not to mention the fact that one entity – i.e. the government of Ecuador, knows absolutely who did and didn't go into that embassy. And has been trying to get Julian Assange kicked out. Exactly. And so I think here, here the reason to be skeptical of the, score, of the story is, first of all, that nobody's matched it. Um, the sourcing is, is, is weird. And by the way, it does seem a little hard to believe that, that Mueller would not have already known about this. That, those are all good reasons. Or that it would have not leaked out by now. Right. I mean, this is not a minor shoe. This is like a shoe factory just dropped. All good reasons to be skeptical of the story. And then the following thing can either be a reason to believe the story may have may be real or additional skepticism, right? Ecuador doesn't want him in that embassy anymore. They want to figure out a way to uh, to get rid of him. So if it's true and you have that information as the Ecuadorian government, this is a great time to drop it because uh, you know it shows you know it allows you as the government of Ecuador to say we're shocked, shocked that this guy is abusing our hospitality and violating U.S. law and meeting with somebody who's a convicted criminal and you know uh, seventy-five million dollars in money laundering and all that. On the other hand, if that's the case. Why aren't they confirming it to other media organizations as well? And that does raise the possibility in my mind, which I think is at this point for me anyway, a likelihood that the story is not true. And it's merely an effort on the part of certain people in the Ecuadorian government to create that ambience without actually having to take responsibility. It's sort of like Dan Rather being fed the fake document about George W. Bush's National Guard service. Well, uh, and we don't have a lot of time to talk about the sealed charges that have been filed against Julian Assange, which were oopsie revealed in a completely unrelated <laughs> proceeding. It's not been a good few weeks for Julian. It's not been at all. It's not been at all. But he did long say that he felt that there were charges against him, and it turns out that he was and by the way, right the, for some of that time. I forget which public it may have been the Daily Beast reported the other day that he doesn't even have his cat anymore. Oh man. 
don't don't feel Good bad for, for this guy. Good for the cat. <laughs> He'll find a better yeah. life with a better steward somewhere. The cat is free. Speaking of cats, no, that's not no. going to work. Mm. Speaking of freedom. Speaking of freedom. <laughs> uh, speaking of, speaking speaking of, of stray cats facilities? that you should kick out of the house. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mohammed bin Salman. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the president last week, right before heading off for the Thanksgiving holiday, issued that exclamation point laden statement uh, in which he reminded us that the world is a very dangerous place, uh, that we need the Saudis. And in reference to uh, the intelligence pointing to Mohammed bin Salman as the person who ordered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, which is what the CIA has determined, the president said, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. So he's holding up both possibilities. Um, it's another example of obviously the president siding with a, a despotic autocrat over the views of the entire intelligence community, or in this case, I guess just the CIA, just them. That's all. Just them. Just Not that a big agency deal. out in Langley that talks about Saudi Arabia sometime. Um, interesting today, uh, Tammy, that it, when Secretary Mattis and Pompeo were testifying on this question of U.S. support for the war in Yemen, and there's this p- possible resolution coming down the pipe uh, to uh, Congress might vote to a resolution saying we should stop supporting the war in Yemen. Um, people wanted Gina Haspel to be up there testifying, and she did not come. Uh, she did not come because, as Pompeo and Mattis apparently confirmed to the senators at this all-senators briefing the White House told her not to come. So um, they didn't do any favors for their boss by making it clear that he's the one who made the decision that the CIA director would not be made available to brief senators on uh, what the United States intelligence community knows and and believes about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the responsibility of, of the Saudi crown prince. So you know, where are we right now? The administration has basically said, uh, okay, yes, the Saudis screwed up. They admit they screwed up. We've sanctioned this group of a dozen and a half people under Global Magnitsky, which is what you senators wanted us to do. We're done. The Saudis are important partners. Get off our backs. And senators, interestingly, quite a coalition of Democrats and Republicans of different stripes, uh, none of them are satisfied with this. And that means that there's um, space on the Hill now, number one, I think, for Democrats in the new session in particular when uh, they take over the House to investigate the Trump administration's policy towards Saudi Arabia, toward the Yemen war, the relationships between Trump and and his businesses and his family and the Saudi royal family. But right now, this week, there is an opening for legislative action to try and constrain administration policy towards Saudi Arabia. And there are two, at least two, vehicles in the Senate right now, one sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Mike Lee, so a Democrat and a Republican, um, also supported strongly by Senator Chris Murphy, who was kind of the the driver of this issue on the Hill. And it's a simple resolution under the War Powers Act to instruct the president to remove the U.S. armed forces from hostilities in Yemen that are not directly authorized by the 2001 AUMF to fight al-Qaeda and associated forces. So in other words, anything that U.S. armed forces are doing 
in hostilities in Yemen that's not directly attacking al-Qaeda, in other words, anything related to the Saudi Emirati campaign, U.S. armed forces have to get out. Now, Pompeo and Mattis maintain that U.S. forces are not engaged in hostilities under the War Powers Resolution. And so this Sanders-Lee legislation actually wouldn't have any effect. That's the argument that they're making right now. When Sanders and Lee put forward a similar resolution in the spring and got a floor vote, it lost, but only by six votes. And it may well pass this time. The other legislative vehicle is a little more substantive, um, less symbolic, and it's sitting in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It's called the Saudi Arabia Accountability and Yemen Act. <laughs> um, there's no cute acronym there. Say. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty cute acronym. Yeah. Uh, and it would also restrict the participation of U.S. Uh, military in support of the Saudi Emirati campaign in Yemen, but it would do a lot more. It would require uh, the administration to provide reports on its strategy in Yemen, on the humanitarian situation, and most importantly, on the specific culpability responsibility of the Saudi government for civilian deaths in Yemen, and for human rights abuses at home in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as well as for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. That bill has to get through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I don't know whether it will or not. But I think one thing that's interesting here is that President Trump's willingness to ignore all the facts and charge forward in an unapologetic defense of the Saudis has generated a backlash amongst Republicans on the Hill including Senator Graham, who's otherwise a very strong Trump ally, including Senator Corker, who's the outgoing chairman of Senate Foreign Relations. And Senator Graham, after the Pompeo Mattis briefing today, said he's not ready to vote for the must-pass omnibus appropriations bill until Gina Haspel comes up and briefs senators on what she knows about Khashoggi. And I want to linger on that very point, too, that you're making, which is, is it's been amazing to me, first off, in covering this story now for almost a month, longer actually, the political ramifications and ripple effects of this, which I admit that I did not think would be forthcoming uh, for the death of a Washington Post contributing columnist, much less one with a funny name. Doesn't um, it make you feel better about traveling abroad, though? I don't know. That's like an if question. you go missing and get dismembered in a foreign embassy or consulate somewhere, you know that there's going to be a firestorm. I don't think I'm going to feel consoled about that. <laughs> can, can, I, can I just point on. out that my wife just began a sentence on a national podcast if you travel abroad and get dismembered in a foreign consulate. Such are the times dot, that dot, we live dot. in. Such Shane are the times. Those people down. Oh, I'm so, so glad to know that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I won't be able to assist in that investigation. Um, but this has been remarkable the way that you're absolutely right, Tammy, that the bipartisan pushback of this, I was just not expecting. And I'm fascinated as to why it is that this has become the moment where it seems even bigger than the death of Jamal Khashoggi, even bigger than the U.S.-Saudi alliance and relationship, which I know a lot of people have misgivings about, but it's been pretty strong, let's let's face it. In the and face, bipartisan. And bipartisan in the face of a lot of awful stuff that's happened in recent years. This seems to be the moment where Republicans and Democrats, particularly Republicans, are looking at the president and going, what is wrong with you? Like this is – like there is no ambiguity on this subject. What are you doing? Yeah, 
I think that's that's the explanation, right? That it's it, we've seen so many things that are beyond the pale that it, it's a little bit hard to explain why this beyond the pale thing. But it is Trump's. It's it's not just Trump saying the quiet part out loud. It's Trump saying out loud the part where he is such an aberration from kind of the core, you know pre-political sort of basic commitments of the United States. And and it's offensive to listen to. And, and his sort of once again strategically employing this, you know, well, this, the CIA hasn't actually determined this. You know, another round of him incredibly brazenly basically saying, he's not saying that he doesn't really believe that the CIA, you know, concluded this. He's saying he doesn't care that the CIA concluded this. And just being so upfront about that, that he just doesn't care. You know, there are serious ramifications for that, I think, around the world. But there are also serious ramifications in terms of our domestic conception of ourselves. And, and I think that that I can't think of another I, I can think of lots of other examples in which, you know, we've seen egregious things, but something that has harmed that that core conception. I think that's why it's it's getting this kind of pushback. I also think there's another – I agree with all of that. I think there's another element too, which is when Trump says crazy things or tweets crazy things, there is this new Republican trope, right? I don't listen to what the president says. I watch what he does or I don't read the tweets. But when the president issues a statement that is that crazy, you actually can't say that because that is unlike – you know, a crazy tweet about Bob Mueller or that statement does certain things, right? You're calling for, you know, accountability for Saudi Arabia and the president issues a statement that says no because they're good for jobs. That is a refusal to do something. And so the line between speech and action with Trump, which has always been a bit of a fiction Republicans created that was convenient to them actually goes away because you're demanding for your own, to the extent you still have it, self-respect and political commitments, you're demanding certain action and the president is saying no and he's ripping the the Band-Aid off the reason. He's not doing it. He's not going to do anything because, you know, this is good for you know, he likes these guys. They're good for business. And, you know, I think that blending of the action component with the speech component uh, makes this crazy speech a little bit harder to respond to. So I agree with both of you. I'm going to add a third dimension of why this produced the reaction that it did, which is that Trump looks like a chump here. Okay, there are a lot of members of Congress who were willing to go to bat for Mohammed bin Salman and for the Saudis who now feel like he lied to them. He lied to their president. Right. He's made them all look like chumps. And all of them, Lindsey Graham being the most notable, are reacting, saying, I'm pissed off. You made me look like a chump. But the president of the United States is saying I nah. am a chump. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, saying, yeah. yeah, and so what? Yeah, so what? So I am a chump. I, these guys are sweet to me. I love them. Yeah. And and so it's it's deeply, deeply embarrassing 
not just that they feel like they've been made fools of, but that this president is like, yeah, so what if he lied to me? So what if he promised he would buy 110 or $150 billion in arms and he's only bought 14? So what if he said he would keep oil prices low and now next week he may collude with Putin to raise them again? So what? And I think that it's actually really hard for them to abide a situation where he's trying to say, he may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. That's the argument Pompeo made in the Wall Street Journal yesterday in this ridiculous op-ed. But actually, the way it looks is that Trump is the Saudis' SOB. And and that's just too, too much to handle. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's exactly right. It, it just it feels like this is just the one step too far, even for Republicans who are willing to go to bat with him for for all these reasons, right? I mean, it's just it, it's so it's so brazenly, nakedly self interested, and it's not in even in our own self interest, right? In a petty way, not in a national interest way, in a right. really small way. And and I think I think to Tammy's point, in a, in a weak way, you know, that not a way that they you know they need us more than we need them, but in this sort of it's bad realism, supplicant, <laughs> it's incompetent you know, realism. Just the <laughs> last kind of question before we move on to the next topic, but you know, I wonder if, I mean, given that, and given that it sounds like it, it seems pretty clear, well, we'll see what happens with the resolution regarding the war in Yemen. There are a lot of steps between there yeah, and not going to have practical not, consequences, right? And, and having real practical consequences, but and so we will probably move on from this at some point. More revelations, I think, will probably come out. But it seems to me this leaves this leaves a mark, right? In the and it kind of leaves a bad taste, particularly in the mouth of Republicans with the president. We've said that before and wondered, like, is this a turning point? Is this you know a fulcrum? What is it? But this whole controversy and the upset and the disappointment among the Republicans in Congress with him over this incident has gone on for almost two full months now. And I just wonder if this isn't going to be something that actually this time does permanently alter the relationship and makes Republicans look at the president differently because it's like now they've seen maybe something that he's capable of that they didn't think he was or they always feared he would be, but he would always keep it in check and not say out loud what he's thinking to this level. I don't know if you guys think this has a lasting effect. Maybe not that changes the trajectory of his presidency, but that just the relationship is different now because they've seen even more of you know who the president is. And he's not been ashamed to show that. He was very proud in the statements that he made. I don't know that it's going to have that much of an effect on Capitol Hill because I think that the senators who would in other circumstances lead that charge are largely leaving yeah. the Senate instead. Corker, you know, and Corker Flake. Flake, Graham may be leaving, who knows, um, to There's take a up a post somewhere. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know that there's critical mass in the Senate, but I do think that the fact that Republican senators are arguing with the White House on this over a period of time and calling the White House out for dishonesty um, probably has a little bit of an effect on the Republican base. All right. We'll see. Well, in the meantime, there's another group of people who I think probably we do know much of what their opinion of the president is, and that's not going to come as a surprise. The G20 is coming up in Argentina. Never been to Argentina. Would love to go. Maybe not. It's summer this. down there. Wow, that sounds really nice. Let's go. Um, Can let's we cover all, it? Let's all go. Yeah, we're sending like three or four people probably. 
I'm not among them, sadly. A roving uh, podcast. That's <laughs> what we need to do. Rational security in Buenos Aires. Right. Um, so Trump will be down there, uh, possibly meeting with Vladimir Putin. Not entirely sure. Uh, he is. I think he's got a bilateral scheduled with President uh, Xi from China. There is this ongoing trade dispute. Do you think Argentina wants to host my fight with Putin to coincide <laughs> with the the G20? Is martial arts big in Argentina? I don't know. It's big in Brazil. Oh, well, you know, maybe they would do it. I mean, I don't think there's an extradition agreement, right? Yeah, that's what you got to You need to check about. into that. Um, Tammy, what are you expecting is going to be – I mean, the it's 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 only two days in the end, perhaps the uh, the optics – are often at these things more than the substance, although he's got a pretty packed bilateral uh, meeting schedule. Like, let's talk first about the optics and the substance, but there is going to be that moment when these leaders from these countries stand there together for the big family picture, and there's going to be Vladimir Putin again, and there's going to be Trump, and there's going to be Mohammed bin Salman, who is the one attending for the Saudis. Uh, how, how are the optics going to play on this? Well, first, let's remember that Trump hates these multilateral summits. He hates them. Remember when he pushed the uh, – what was the poor prime minister from Belgium out of the way? Yeah. So first of all, he hates being one in a large number of heads of state. He thinks it's somehow beneath him. He sent Pence to ASEAN. He didn't go to ASEAN just a couple weeks ago. He had a tantrum on his last foreign trip to Paris to commemorate the 100th anniversary of uh, the end of World War I. Because it rained. Because it rained. So, you know, let's hope for good weather in Buenos Aires. But, you know, so the setup is already one in which he is likely to misbehave, or at least in previous such circumstances, he has done and said things that don't reflect well on him, on American interests, on our interaction with our partners. But the G20 is a weird group, okay? So this is the 20 largest economies. It's meant to be a little bit of a counterweight to the G7, which is, you know, Western, pro-Western large economies. And we kicked the Russians out of the G7. But the G20 includes China and India and and Russia. And so there's a lot of room for headbutting already. And it's a place where traditionally it's it's a balance for the American president to, on the one hand, say, we welcome you into our liberal international order. And on the other hand, demonstrate American supremacy. Um, Trump is not going to be good at either of those things if indeed he has any intention of them at all. And so I think it's the bilaterals where things are going to be interesting. This meeting with Xi, is it going to be adversarial, confrontational over trade practices? Or is it going to be, oh, I love Xi and he loves me and we have a great partnership and we're working together in North Korea? It could go either way, right? Putin, same thing. Is Trump going to be tough um, reflecting the State Department statement that they finally got out on the Ukraine crisis yesterday? Or is he going to cozy up to Putin the way we saw him do in Helsinki last year? And P.S., that's not an accident that Russia decides to take prisoners from Ukrainian sailors and confiscate their ships, you know, days before Putin goes to Argentina. Yeah, not an accident. I mean, you know, sort of two things. You know, one that there is one of the strongest arguments against serious investigations of the president is that he's going to be distracted from this other really, really important business that he has to attend to. Which he's otherwise really focused on. <laughs> this is this actually is right. So it's it's not that um it's not that that's the reality in this case, but I, I do think it's an area in which sort of 
the shit storm at home is likely to make things even worse, both because it's going to uh, aggravate his sort of his his sense of grievance. And, uh, you know, we, we know he hates traveling. Times in which he's been traveling and big stories have blown up at home have been particularly bad situations. The other thing I think will be interesting to watch is whether or not foreign leaders are interested any longer in playing the we love Trump game. And so we saw early on sort of people saying, "Okay, we understand that this is a guy who you have to stroke his ego and make this nice statement and and try and, you know, make nice with him. And that's how you have this, um, you know, this beneficial relationship. And I do think we're seeing people sort of come to the end of their ropes with that. And, And I will I think it'll be interesting to see if, you know, she or others make big statements ahead of time that sort of make clear that they're there to play hardball and and that ultimately this will all end up being an interpersonal issue, right? Does the president feel loved and accepted and like you're on his side? Or does he feel like you're one of the bad guys who's who's unfair and up against him? And, and that there's actually, that is so intensely specific to the president's personal feelings in like the kindergarten sense of the term, that there's no way to predict based on sort of the actual geopolitical environment because it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with chocolate cake. That's true. And how many pieces he gets. It's all about who gets the bigger piece Delicious of chocolate cake and how good cake. the chocolate cake is. Or sword dances and projecting his yeah. photo up on big buildings. I mean, I, I, think, I think you're right, Susan, that other world leaders are no longer interested in playing his game. On the other hand, I think they've learned in the last nearly two years just how easy it is to manipulate him. And so they know they're not playing his game. They are playing him. And I think that's what we're likely to see. Just as you noted, you know, the timing of this escalation with Ukraine is is by no means accidental. One of the things that's interesting also about these these meetings is they create an occasion for leaders from different countries to reaffirm their shared values and commitments to one another. And, you know, there's obviously there is the leader to leader relationship, and then there's the actual relationships between governments. And I mean, Ben, one thing I'm curious going into this summit for what you're you're thinking is, we've wondered, I think, for a couple of years now, to what degree the president is straining relationships with historically very close allies. I mean, we think about the British is probably the one that comes first to mind, where there is a longstanding intelligence partnership that particularly at the signals intelligence level is almost like like a level of brethren, right? I mean, these are almost interchangeable services to some to, degree. To the point that after 9-11, mm-hmm. the head of NSA – calls the head of GCHQ and says, if anything happens to this building, you are in charge of U.S. signals intelligence. Right. Right. Extraordinary moment. Um, The relationship between President Trump and uh, Prime Minister May is tested, testy. (laughs) It's it's not great. She has, I think, probably tried to do more to manage that, and he's thrown a lot of it back in her face. But as we head into this this summit, I'm wondering, do you think that fundamentally when it comes to our allies, our oldest allies, and the ones with whom these kinds of intelligence partnerships particularly matter, that things are generally okay? Or are we seeing strains and cracks now where there didn't used to be any because of uh, what Trump has has brought into this administration and the way that he both treats allies and even in some cases um, uh, is is casual in how he handles uh, intelligence that they have shared with us. Yes, 
Um, I think both are correct. On on the one hand, you know, if Donald Trump does not win re-election and is replaced by somebody of either party who is uh, sane and normal and believes in traditional U.S. roles and values in overseas relationships – this is a set of wounds that will heal. And, you know, the the relationships, particularly within the Five Eyes, but within the transatlantic community in general are very, very deep. And, you know, culture is not disrupted, including political culture, is not profoundly and irreparably disrupted by a four-year aberrational uh, crazy person. Um, on the other hand, has... Donald Trump made a lot of Europeans and a lot of U.S. allies think are think about hard about the question, are we over-relying on the United States for core interests? Do we have to think about how to do certain things on our own? Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, you know, Macron and, and Angela Merkel have said that publicly. The EU is clearly thinking about that in ways that it would have been unthinkable a number of years ago. And, you know, that's an inevitable consequence of having a U.S. president who vocally and repeatedly and unrepentantly denies the premise of U.S. leadership over long periods of time. And and that will have a long tail. I don't know what it looks like. I don't mean to say there, you know, these relationships are dead or won't revive. And but there, you know, the the idea that there is a bipartisan uh, or nonpartisan consensus about certain aspects of the U.S. role in the world, you know, it was dangerous to that even to have Trump nominated let alone elected. Uh, and, you know, that's a that's going to be a scar that's going to be there for a long time. I actually think that we are a little bit in danger of overstating the Trump factor in those trends rather than political trends in Europe that pre-existed Trump's election. There's no doubt that Trump has exacerbated certain problems in the transatlantic relationship, but I don't think that they were created by his nomination or by his election because political trends in Europe have been troubling with regard to European unity before Trump's election. The the Brexit phenomenon, the debates over uh, open borders and migration, these things have been building for a long time. And, you know, and and so what you have, whether Trump gets reelected or not at the political level in Europe is you have a set of adjustments taking place that would be taking place no matter who the American president is and that are going to continue even if he leaves office tomorrow or two years from now. I think that having him here in Washington interacting with them the way he is has exposed certain vulnerabilities in the transatlantic relationship were exposed a certain set of assumptions that some European leaders were working on the basis of and opened them to question. And that's made things harder. But, you know, 
whether or not Trump wins re-election, Angela Merkel is stepping down as the leader of her party. Whether or not Trump wins re-election, the UK is going its own way, which even which means that even though May and Trump have a very difficult relationship, the UK needs the United States more now than it did a few years ago. That's not going to change. So I, I think that Yes, Trump is important, but he didn't create this stuff, and some of it is going to continue even after he's gone. Okay, before we move on to object lessons, uh, we want to take a second just to send best wishes for a speedy recovery to General Mike Hayden, who is recovering from uh, a recent stroke. There was his uh, center out in Virginia put out an announcement about this a few days ago. Uh, so uh, I think we all are hoping for the best for, for him. You actually mentioned him a minute ago. I did. He was the NSA director who called the Brits and said, you're taking over should anything happen. Um, but obviously uh, somebody who uh, is well known to people uh, here on the podcast. And I think we all just wanted to wish him and his family well and let them know that they're in our thoughts. You're here. Great. Uh, so let's do object lessons. Um, Susan, you want to start? So my object lesson is a long running dream finally realized oh wow Fever dream? i have been making <laughs> I know exactly where the she's dumbest going joke for a very long time about how we should do a lawfare material support shirt mm-hmm. because there is the material support statutes and you could materially support lawfare wait uh, you mean that a t-shirt would be a piece of material, a physical object. Like it works on so rayon. the many purchase levels. of which represents support. Okay. <laughs> Even Ben stopped laughing at this like two years ago. He's laughing now. But finally, we have made the material support t-shirt. On the front, it says, I materially support lawfare. On the back, it says 18 U.S.C. 2339B. Designated since 2010. (laughs) It is perfect. If you want one, you can go to the lawfare store. You can buy it for yourself. For all of your family and friends. Great Christmas Christmas gifts. I don't know why you wouldn't. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, to see it in the flesh... um, you know, I don't want to or say that it's fabric. better than meeting my children, but it's very <laughs> close. <laughs> Did they make a onesie? <laughs> I hadn't even thought about the that. Material but... support onesie. <laughs> yeah. uh, congratulations. Susan. Thank That's you. Thank you, guys. Beautiful. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, ben. So on the way over uh, to uh, Brookings to record rational security, I was in an Uber and I passed by a building that almost moves me to tears every time I see it. It is the Octagon House, which is now run, uh, now owned by, I believe, the National Association of Architects. But it is the closest thing that the United States has to a White House in exile. Because in 1814, when the British invaded and sacked Washington and burned the White House to the ground. And James and Dolly Madison fled ahead of British troops. And they fled to a little town in Maryland, uh, which still has the house. Brookville, Maryland. Still has the little house they stayed in that night. When they came back to Washington, the White House was a smoldering ruin. And they moved into a nearby building called the Octagon House, which is a stately brick uh, house was then. It's now uh, uh, still there. Uh, and so I think of this as a metaphor in brick. Uh, when the White House 
is burned, uh, you can always retreat to the Octagon House. And it's a, a symbol of everything that is resilient about American democracy. And I love that building. And so I just saw it. Um, it's in a part of town I don't drive by all the time. And I just tweeted it again. And I just think the Octagon is a symbol of everything that we should value. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. We made it through, you guys. Two weeks worth of news jammed into oh one podcast. Oh, my God. We, we skipped so much. So much. So much. So much. So so much. Come back to us next week, guys. We have so much more to talk it about. It will definitely be there. In the meantime, remember Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, and you can find our show page on the Lawfare blog place that doesn't have any unsigned attached to it, but is represented by one. You know, like he, for months, he was you know, badgering me because we hadn't moved it over from the spaghetti on the wall site. Now we have moved it over. You got nothing to reproach me with. I know. I know. I just try to turn like every item in the end credits into its own recurring (laughs) thing, but maybe we should just let that one go. I think it's time to let that one go. It's brought to you by Lawfare. It's sitting there on the (laughs) Lawfare website. There's no problem, dude. (laughs) You can also find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please Please remember to leave us a nice rating and review. It's really been helping uh, others find the podcast. And we had a big milestone. We 2018, did. over oh. 1 million downloads of the podcast. Woohoo! That's pretty great, you guys. Thank love you very you much. We love, we you. love you. That is so awesome. Spread the word and keep it up. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mohammed bin Salman and his new motivational a cappella group. There's no upside down exclamation point in team. <laughs> okay, sorry. that was a little. A little I just cobbled that together with lots of different things I wanted to. Choose the in. extended play version. I like that one. I'm just happy with. I'm just tickled by that one, and I hope Sophia Yan is too. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Coffin, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. 